I'll just introduce who the characters are for the story. Um, and if you can please get out a Bible to follow along, if you'd like to. So if it's your first time here, uh, there's Bibles out the back. If you have a Bible on your phone, something like that, we're looking at John chapter 9. Now in John chapter 9, um, Hannah here is going to do a couple of roles. So I'll get you to stand here, Hannah. Then I'll be Jesus, just because I... Don't worry. Uh, you can ask me later why. Um, I always feel it's... Anyway. Uh, Tom's going to be the blind man, and then Caleb's going to be the Pharisees. So I'll get you to use that one. Hello. Hey, all right. Thank you, everyone. John chapter 9. As he, that is Jesus, <clears throat> went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long it is, as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? they asked. The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, so they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, 
who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him. You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He was steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him... Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. What? Are we blind too? If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now you claim you can see, your guilt remains. We're now going to spend some time thinking about that passage together, but I'll pray for myself and for us as we spend some time uh, meeting Jesus in this story about him. So I'm going to pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we ask for a good gift from you this morning, a great spiritual blessing. We ask that we may be able to see clearly with our understanding, with our hearts and our minds and our souls, that we will understand truly who you are, and what it means for Jesus to be sent into the world, and what that means for our lives, our faith, our actions, our destiny. Please help me speak and explain clearly and truthfully and persuasively and help each of us here have our questions answered, have our hearts warmed. May we meet you as we read this story of this man born blind meeting you many years ago. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. One of the many bizarre features of modern life is uh, experienced at the great music stadium show. I mean, at the smaller gig, perhaps as well, of the lesser known but still famous artist, but let's say the stadium show for now. You pay hundreds of dollars to tickets. Maybe you're refreshing in order to wait for the tickets to come online to get them, and you've got the tickets, and you've spent hundreds to get them, and hundreds on flights if you live in Tasmania and probably have to go somewhere else to use the tickets. And then, because you've got the, the, the general admission tickets up the front, you then spend ages, maybe arriving in the morning, to wait in line so you can get the best possible seats at the stadium of this great artist. And then you talk through the support act, because, yeah, whatever. Um, and then finally the artist is there, and they come on stage, and the lights and the smoke and the roar of the crowd, and then something really interesting happens. 
People who've paid hundreds of dollars in tickets, hundreds of dollars in flights and accommodation, and then waited hundreds of minutes in line to get to these great seats. And then finally, this great one, this artist they've been dying to see, they pull out their phone, turn on the video, and then take footage of it on their phone. <laughs> on their phone. It is weird how technology can strangely kind of amputate us so that we have this full 360 stadium experience, this full, immediate, right there. If they came to the edge of the... I could reach out and touch them, and I spend this time looking at them through this terrible tiny screen, getting footage I'll never use that's worse than the, you know, the, the concert videos that I could watch on YouTube later. I get a memory of looking at a phone, which can then remind me of the terrible memory of looking at the phone. <laughs> we weirdly become blind in the middle of something that we could see and enjoy and then remember and revisit in that memory. We become blind <laughs> behind our phone. Behaviour around devices is so easy to laugh at, isn't it? It's a strange, the bunch of different ways it can make us blind. That the big family road trip, save up, get the time off, maybe mum or dad's long service leave and you plan it all and you research it, uh, the route you're going to take, the attractions, historical, geological, cultural, entertainment, adventure along the way, the uh, long-lost family members you'll visit, that is, get free accommodation with, along the trip. Um, look, kids, look, look, you say as you drive along. Uh, kids say from the back seat. Look, kids, a cassowary bird. Did you know? Look, kids, the Sydney Harbour Bridge just over there. Look, kids, the, the Olgas, the Catachuta. Uh, cool, kids say from the back seat. Are we nearly at the motel? Heads deep in YouTube, Instagram, Discord, and husband or wife who's not driving probably as well. Hmm, that's good, honey. <laughs> Can't see, won't see, weirdly blind. The trip of a lifetime. Sorry if that cuts a little too close for some of you. Uh, adults can be just as bad. Here we are with the miracle of life, the next generation before us. And parents and grandparents have their family around them, kids and grandkids, the miracle of life. Blink and you'll miss it. They'll grow up and they'll be gone and then they'll never call. And you're not seeing, you're not noticed because you're reading the news, watching the cricket, Tinkering with that thing, whether it's the job around the house or the hobby. Milestones passing by, cute little quirky things that kids say, hardly heard. Profound questions asked and missed. Weirdly blind. Look, Grandpa. Look, Mum. Uh, we say. Lovely, we mumble. As we continue reading the news, tinkering with the thing, getting cross at the bolt or the glue or whatever it is. Ambition can be the same. You end up at this great conference, art gallery opening, sporting event, and you're so, Parliament House maybe for some of you, and you're so busy shaking the right hands and swapping the right business cards, so to speak, that you're not appreciating the excellence of the moment. You're too busy working the room, working the angles, negotiating. It's like, really, so much of life is high school all over again. <laughs> We can so quickly become blind to the stuff of life. And that's really the theme of this passage, isn't it? Uh, using the metaphor of blindness and sight to describe understanding and appreciating, in this case, Jesus himself. 
This series across these two weeks, today and then next week, we'd love to have you come back or bring someone along with us next week. We're looking at two stories from the Gospel of John, one of the Bible books, describing these people who meet Jesus, these encounters with Jesus. We're not going to spend a lot of time uh, talking about the questions of the historical reliability of the Bible stories, these Gospel documents. There is evidence for their reliability, their, their sound historical uh, substance. We, we could look at that. That just won't be the focus of these, these weeks. And we, and we won't, they're not so much going to be philosophical lectures, these, um, these two Sundays, um, asking questions about could a ra rational scientific person believe in the possibility of a miracle? Uh, or how can God allow suffering in the world? Or something like this. There are good philosophical arguments. We could talk about those. That's just not what we're, we're doing in these these few mornings. You should ask, is this history? You should ask, is this believable? Yes. We're going to take a slightly different approach, though. What we're going to be doing is stepping into the story and thinking about what if it were true? What if it really happened? What would it mean for me, for the world, if this stuff that's being described to us here in these ancient documents really is what happened? that so many of the people in this room who sing and pray and believe this, that they're right to sing and pray and believe this, that this is actually where we find the meaning of life, where we meet God. What would that be like? That's the kind of approach we're going to take. I, I think it does help understanding. I think if you're trying to understand, maybe you don't know anything about Christianity and you're just trying to learn a little, maybe you knew it when you grew up but haven't really thought about it in a long time, then I think this approach does give you kind of the context, the vibe, the shape of Christian belief. You get a sense of going, right, I can kind of see how it works. So it does help with understanding. It also helps, I think, with persuasion, because I hope as we look at this, you find it interesting you find something about it beautiful and, and appealing, and maybe at least you say, gosh, it would be cool if it was true. These people have this and believe it. I wish I could have it and believe it. Maybe it would at least get you thinking that way, to say, maybe it is, maybe I should. Maybe, could there be more to it? At the very end of um, his book, John um, talks to us about the purpose in writing the book. And in John chapter 20, the very end of the book, he says, um, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which aren't recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. He wants to persuade you for you to come to believe that Jesus is who Christians say he is, and by believing in that, have all the good things that come from believing. So come with us. Let's walk into this world. Let's re replay these events, hear the conversations, ponder their significance. It's a privilege, actually, because with the life of Jesus, we don't only have some sermons recorded, as, as with some historical figures. We just have their speeches and their great works in the halls of power. With Jesus, we have his teaching and his conversations and his interactions often with quite ordinary people as well. 
It's a privilege to get to know Jesus in this intimate kind of way. So first, John chapter 9 tells us the story of a miracle. Let's replay the miracle again. Verse 1, as Jesus went along, he saw a man born uh, blind from birth. And that tells the story of the healing there in verse 6 and 7. Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed came home singing. Now that is a report of a remarkable miracle. That is a, a profound physical restoration of the organs of the eyes and all that would be needed for the brain and the perception. If you'd been born blind, you'd never had your brain receiving that input and processing it. So it's a, it's, it's a brain, a neurological and a ophthalmological <laughs> restoration that's taking place here. This goes well beyond a lot of what gets recorded as faith healings today. Um, cancer recession or chronic pain reduction or uh, the soothing of a mood disorder. Th those things are wonderful things when people experience them, but this is a whole other level, isn't it? This is like sight from nothing but blindness. It involves, strangely, a mechanical act. Too. So it's remarkable in the miracle, and then it's remarkable in the way it, it goes about it. This mud and then spit placing on the eyes. Now, in the context of the story of Jesus, this is strange. In, in other settings, um, witchcraft or magic of various kinds, including the use of spit, actually, in, the ancient, in antiquity, sometimes you know, it was used as a, as a form of medicine and so on. You know, in other settings, this would be familiar enough. But in the setting of the stories of Jesus, this is unusual. The Christians who, you know, if you asked anyone here who reads the Bible a lot, so is this Jesus a lot of spitting in the Gospels? They'd say, yeah, not, not so much. Like Christians go, why is that? That's odd. It, it's not that Jesus does little spells and incantations and potions. Uh, Jesus heals with a word very often, even from a distance, remote healing, uh, with a touch or with being touched unawares. So this does stand out. It's peculiar. It's peculiar as well because we are actually told why. <laughs> it just gets mentioned to us. Um, in part, I mean, later on it causes controversy, verse 14, because it took place on this day of rest, the Sabbath, the religious day of rest. That was the day he made the mud. There was a scandal because you did work. You picked up some mud and spat in it. You were working on this, on this day of rest. How dare you? So perhaps, in part, he did it to provoke that controversy, some wonder. Perhaps it was, in this particular case, to draw in an act of participating obedience from this man, who in many ways was passive and powerless. Jesus made this paste, but then said, go and wash. He was sent to the pool of scent to trust Jesus that something was at work here, and then came home seeing, perhaps. Some thinking a little deeper still wonder, could we see here Jesus in a gentle way symbolizing that he is the creator bringing new life? The Bible's creation story of humanity speaks of God taking the dust of the earth, fashioning a man and breathing the breath of life uh, to create humanity. This idea of uh, God being the life giver, humans being ordinary and yet blessed with the extraordinary. 
So maybe this is a gentle hint at that. Here is Jesus taking simple mud uh, and yet being able to give a whole new lease on life to this person where there was, if you like, visual darkness and all these limitations on his life because of this being born blind. Now there is the light of, of sight and all that opens a new life out of nothing. Is, are we being told here the creator is walking among us? The power of the healing creator. Back in chapter 5, Jesus heals on a Sabbath. And there, the conversation does go in that direction. Just as the creator keeps working all week long, so Jesus can keep working all week long. He's not bound by the Sabbath rule. So, perhaps. Perhaps the pool of scent is drawn to our attention to remind us that Jesus is God sent into the world to bring new life to the world. Perhaps. I mean, these are all guesses. Why the mud and the spit? We don't know. Um, but in a funny little way, it is a hint at what most ordinary history is like. If you get used to reading history, you get used to strange details getting mentioned in passing. And the gospel accounts do mention the just-so-happened details, uh, not the perfectly fashioned, made-up story, but also the things that the people who were there saw and heard. The healing takes place. The man goes obediently, washes in this pool to cleanse off this mysterious um, uh, mud packed, and, uh, and comes home seeing. Verse 7, remarkable miracle. Astonishing. A meaning for the significance of the episode as a whole is given to us that's not about the mud, but about the larger significance of it. In the conversation just before the miracle, verses 2 to 5. So let's listen in on that. In a second heading, having noted the miracle, let's now listen into something of its meaning in this dialogue in verses 2 to 5. As we think about sin, the sign, and Jesus' mission. Let's think about the sin, the miraculous sign, and Jesus' mission. See, these people see the man born blind, have pity upon him, and ponder, how does these things happen? Why, why do such things happen? Verse 2, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're looking for a reason, a causation. Punishment, they assume. Who's to blame? This is very common in theological and spiritual thinking, uh, that problems in the world are the result of wrongdoing. You did something wrong, serves you right, can be the way people look to think. They even float the, the quite remarkable idea of going, perhaps that he sinned before he was born, and that's why he was born blind. It's a common enough explanation. But if you're familiar with reading the Bible, it doesn't work with what the Bible itself teaches. It's not a biblical idea, this one. Yeah. It, I mean, it doesn't fit with experience either. I mean, it just doesn't take long, does it, to walk out into Launceston before you see rich, evil people who are healthy and strong and poor, good people who are sick and suffering. Read the news, walk around the world, rich, evil people, healthy and strong, poor, good people, sick and suffering. The Bible picks up that same theme. In the, the Jewish part of the Bible, the Old Testament, in books like Job and Psalms and Ecclesiastes, it often tells us that, yeah, uh, suffering and sickness is often not the result of punishment for an individual. You're bad, that's why you have got a bad life. And in Jesus' teaching, like here and elsewhere, Jesus says the same. It's not the case that you're blind because you did something wrong. 
Now, Jesus' answer denies punishment and then gives another remarkable explanation. Verse 3, he says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Not because of sin, but so the work of God can be shown. This isn't a full explanation. It's not like Jesus is saying, oh, that's entirely why it happened. God let the person suffer throughout their life up to this point just so that he could show off. It's not that our suffering is simply, simplistically a a vehicle for God's showmanship or something. But in the wider context of how God is at work in the world, even with suffering that has been permitted in the world, it is a wonderful thought to go, hey, even the bad things in my life, they could have a, be a means by which God's glory can be shown. That's a cool thought. That actually, even in the bad things, something good can be at work. It's a great thought. Jesus says in verses 4 and 5 that he's bringing God's work into the world. He's bringing, uh, he's bringing a daytime when God is at work in the world. He's bringing light into the world. Light, an image of safety, of purity of understanding. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. But night is also coming, he says, hinting probably at his death. There is night to come soon. And so within that context, this miracle is especially fitting because darkness is associated with blindness, is associated with being, if you like, lost and without God, not understanding God and not enjoying the purity and the blessing of God. And then he has come to bring light and sight and life with God and forever. So Jesus does this miracle, showing God's glory in the life of this man hinting at this blessing of God, bringing light into the world. How do people respond? Extraordinary event, truly a miracle, a wonder. Well, the people in Jesus' day weren't gullible and just said, oh yeah, I believe miracles happen all the time. Must have been. No, there's, there's skepticism. Have a look in verse 8. Uh, we get a range of reactions. Verse 8, his neighbours and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, is isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? They're, they're astonished. Some claim he was, but others don't buy it. Others say, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Well, then how are your eyes open, they asked. And he tells the story. We'll hear his story many times over. The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He sent me to Siloam and washed. And when I washed, I could see. Where is the man? I don't know, he says. Various reactions, responses, skepticism, uncertainty. What I want us to notice as the story unfolds is how the man's boldness begins to grow. Perhaps you picked that up as it was read out for us. Here, he says, oh, look, just here's what happened. And, uh, and here's, here's the result. And I, I don't know where he is now, but that, that's just how it went. Slowly, he gets bolder. <laughs> Slowly, he even gets a bit sarcastic and, uh, and challenging to those who questions him. He's met Jesus, and it's changed his life. And so he now is wanting to talk about Jesus. Jesus was sent from God, and now it's like this man has also been sent by Jesus to talk about his experience. He hasn't even seen Jesus with his physical eyes yet, but he has already seen Jesus, quote-unquote, with his heart. 
He realizes that Jesus is the one bringing God's blessing into the world. He's beginning to understand. Yeah. We'll watch this growing boldness and the irony and the criticism of this healed man as the controversy. So let's now look at this controversy. Seen the miracle, the discussion about the meaning of the miracle, the reactions to the miracle. Now let's think about controversy because the Pharisees are not impressed. Verse 12. Um, Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him uh, how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. The Pharisees were Jewish religious leaders. They were conservative. They were biblicists, Bible people of the day. They were traditionalists. And yet their response to this divine spiritual event, this life-changing good deed, was to be scandalized. That was their response. It, it, It should be shocking to us. They miss the goodness. All they see is making the mud. They don't see the miracle. The mud and the spit, as far as they're concerned, is work on the day of God's rest. And so they, that's all, they can't go past it. They are blind in that sense to seeing the miracle of someone being able to see. Their conservative, traditional, biblicism cannot allow of any exception, even divine exceptions. Their, uh, their devoutness closes out God. <laughs> They're focusing on details of religious observance and miss Jesus, miss God himself. Back in chapter 5, Jesus says, you diligently study the scriptures because you're convinced in them is eternal life and then you don't come to me, the scriptures talk about. It's like you're stuck in a loop, thinking about the rules and the words and not seeing the one they point to. You're blind. This prompts the seeing man whom Jesus had healed to tell his story again. Verse 15. And there are various reactions again in verse 16. Now, not all the Pharisees are the same. Notice in verse 16. Some say, verse 16, this man is not from God, he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others, well, they're being won over. How can a sinner do such a miraculous sign? So there was division amongst the Pharisees. We're going to focus on the scandalized ones because that's where John focuses his attention. Can they see what God is doing in the world? Can they see the meaning of Jesus Christ's work? You can't assume, you and I can't assume, that, oh, if God appeared today, right now, and if instead of this guy up the front from Hobart talking, we actually had God appear again, Jesus came back and then did some Jesus things, then I'd believe. Till you bring Jesus back and he pulls a banana out my nose or something, I'm, I'm not going to believe. But if you did, well, then I'd believe. The warning of the Bible is human nature is such that you may not. Even if God did all the tricks and miracles and wonders in the world, the warning of the Bible is actually still, you may not see. We are stubborn in our blindness of certain types. We can easily not see what we don't want to see. So the controversy continues. 
We could say the controversy now starts to turn into a carnival. It gets more and more comical as the story goes on. It's really delightful. It's a very delightful human story as John tells it to us. The man is growing in confidence, um, verse 17. Um, they turn again to the blind man and say, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes you opened. And bang, just like that, real quick, he's a prophet, he said. I've been talking preacher stuff for a while, so this is just merely a comic break. But has anyone seen the, um, the viral CEO of Corn YouTubes? Little kid raving about corn? Okay, some of you have. Some of you, uh, you're welcome. I've given you a gift. Don't look at it now. But afterwards, you will have some joy as you meet this kid who is delightfully thrilled with corn. And at one point in the video, this is illustrative of almost nothing, um, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the YouTuber interviewing this kid who loves his corn on the cob says, how much should corn cost? And immediately, almost before the question's finished, the kid goes, one dollar. Just straight away. <laughs> A bit like that. <laughs> man born blind. As soon as he's asked, what do you say? He doesn't say, well, depends what you mean. I get. He just goes, he's a prophet. One dollar. <laughs> he's a prophet. He's, a, he's growing in confidence. He, there's no hesitation. He knows he's encountering something divine. No hesitation. Quick answer. Boom. He's a prophet. The Pharisees still, though, won't have it, so they now call his parents in. It does get quite carnivalesque. He calls them in, asks them what happened. They don't want to have anything to do with it. They say, oh, yes, he was born blind. We don't know what happened. We don't want to say, ask him. He's a grown-up. <laughs> They're washing their hands of it, aren't they? They're scared, actually, of the controversy. You don't need to ask us. You know he's not. You already know. And so they mumble and fumble and dodge the question and step out, stage left. They don't want to get involved. They're frightened. This exposes, you see. The story is showing us the lengths that we can go to to ignore inconvenient truths. The way we can be willfully blind, block our ears. The way we will just keep Googling and Googling and ask the chat GPT robot to tell us what we already think. We'll find someone sooner or later who'll tell us what we want to hear. As Jesus said in verse 5, night is coming. A night even in our own minds and souls. It's comic, but it's tragic. Are you going to see Jesus? Are you going to actually open your eyes? The carnival continues as they call the man back again. And the way John tells the story, he draws attention to this yet again, a second time. Verse 24, they summon the man who'd been born blind. Give glory to God, they say. And they're not seeing God's glory. It's quite ironic. We know. <laughs> Give glory to God. Tell us what we want to hear, they say. <laughs> we know this man is a sinner. And now the man gets quite gutsy in his reply. It's a simple, bold reply. Look, whether he's a sin or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind, now I see. What do you want from me? Yeah? There's a raw, brute fact here. I may not have all the answers, but I've got the basic facts that are sufficient for me. If you were willing to see it, there's something simple about personal testimony. The next exchange is my favourite. Um, it gets absurd and ironic even more so, right? They, they're fixated on what they want to hear, and so they basically escalate and get, get angry at him. They, they go, okay, um, uh, what exactly did he do? How exactly did he open his? Oh, look, we know this. We've been over this. What are you doing? So he challenges them. He mocks them, verse 27. Look, I've told you. Why are you asking so much? Why are you so interested? Do you want to become a Christian? 
is more or less what he's saying. You keep fixating on this. You're obviously... Then they start attacking him. You're steeped in sin. Uh, they hurl insults at him. You're this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses, verse 28. Verse 29, we know that God spoke to Moses, but this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Later on, they say, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they throw him out. Sooner or later, every conversation and debate devolves, doesn't it? There's an internet law, Goodwin's law, that says sooner or later, every argument on the internet ends up bringing up Hitler. It's a little bit like that here. Sooner or later, we end up just attacking the blind man. Oh, you're a sinner. How dare you? They don't want to listen. And yet the man is bolder. The man is wiser. The man teases out the obvious. Like he's, like he's gone out with the kids to explain to the creche how this all works. He says, okay, go up the front now. Let me explain to you. Um, uh, this is remarkable. You don't see where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God, don't we, kids? That God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of the eyes of a man born blind being opened. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Come on. It's the obvious. God is at work here. Why won't you see it? In response, they cancel him, throw him out. We haven't seen much of Jesus all through this. And yet there's a Jesus-shaped hole through this whole story. We see the effects of Jesus, the ripple effects of Jesus' work all through it. The glory is going to Jesus. The light is shining on Jesus. The reflection of this man and his experience, his words about what has happened to him, illuminate the greatness of Jesus. We are getting greater and greater clarity in life and truth. The shadows are being cast out. Although for the Pharisees, they shield their eyes. They turn away. They cringe into what shadows are left. The light of God's shining in the world. How are you going to react? Will you seek to understand? Will you open your eyes and open your ears and come to understand? Or will you switch off? Roll your eyes, scroll on. And finally, the man meets Jesus in this final section. He meets Jesus. He says, Jesus says to the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asks, tell me, and I will believe. I'm wanting to see. I'm wanting to understand. I'm wanting to know. Jesus says, you are seeing me. I'm the one speaking to you. Lord, I believe, the man says, and he worships Jesus. Beautiful. A beautiful conversation to hear. Just as relevant to you. Could this be you? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Will you worship Jesus, the light of the world? Or do you need to hear the warning? For Jesus then says in verse 39, For judgment I have come into this world, so the blind will see, yes, but as a consequence, those who see, who think they see, will become blind. The Pharisees scandalized by this, and, and Jesus says, well, you're claiming that you can see just shows how guilty you are. You won't see what you claim you believe. The blind will see. Those who realize they need God will receive him. But those who see will become blind. Those who fancy they are fine won't see at all. 
One of the scandals of um, Hobart over the last few years was the hanging up of crosses everywhere. The Mona organizers wanted to do it to scandalize the Christians. Um, the Christians played along, got scandalized, and Mona got the free advertising. But what was sad in the whole thing for the Mona organizers in their sort of just sneering, cheap way, and in the Christians who fell for the trap, was that actually there was a great opportunity there to say, you know what, you're putting up the crosses to offend Christians, failing to realize the whole point of the cross is that it was an offense. The whole point of the cross was that Christians are already, we're pre-offended, we should be. <laughs> we're we're pre-packaged to have already been offended and in that offense, God, to have saved the world. The cross was a place of spitting on God and rejecting God and being blind to God and killing God and mocking God. And yet that very offense was the salvation of the world. So if you put up the cross to be an offensive thing, the Christian should go, yes, it is an offensive thing. That's the miracle and genius of God, that through the offense of the mocking and the unbelieving and the rejecting and the hating, through the Pharisees even, opposing, criticizing, rejecting Jesus, that led to the cross when the sun set, so to speak, and the night came when he was betrayed and tried and beaten and crucified, taken down and buried. In that very shocking moment when God himself was slain, Jesus' death himself, in that scandal and offense, brought salvation, took our guilt and shame, brought life, light for the whole world. So those of you who are Christians here or religious in some way, beware. If you think you're full of light, it's possible you could actually be blind, that you could be looking at a phone during a concert as you go on the road trip of a lifetime. Beware how religion itself can blind you to God. Beware. But those of you who are not Christians, well, welcome. Here you are. You're meeting Jesus in these stories. You're getting to hear him, see him described. He came into the world to give you light, life, knowledge, forgiveness, healing, eternal life. He's meeting you right now. Yes, it's understandable. You'll have questions, doubts. You should. You should ask and question but I guess I want to encourage you, step into the light and ask and question. Find out more, come back next week, ask the friend who invited you, talk more, read more, think more. Yeah, you've got this chance, you've seen something, step forward, hear more, find out, step into the light, not away from the light. Open your eyes, don't shield them. Have the man say to you, now look, one thing I know, I was blind and I can see. Would you like to find out more? Come and find out more with us, won't you? It's an amazing opportunity. And the frightening thought is that you might join the Pharisees, if you like, those who wouldn't see. And you go from being curious to being dismissive so quickly. And more than the concert of a lifetime or the road trip of a lifetime, the very thing of life itself could pass you by. Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, we pray for one another, for everyone here in this room. We pray that those of us who do see that we may keep seeing and not be blinded by our religion to no longer see you. We pray for those of us here who are beginning to see a little, that you will shine more light, give more understanding, move them to seek an answer to their questions, bring them to believe in Jesus and have life in his name. We thank you so much for not only creating the world, but coming to bring new life and forgiveness and hope to a broken world. And we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.